Hi, everyone. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Uh, we begin a new teaching series today, and as you can see on the screen, it's about Jesus. And uh, we have 40 different pictures of Jesus up there, and so we're going to, this is artist renderings of, uh, of Christ, and what we're going to do over the next 40 Sundays is walk through each picture. <laughs> I can't wait to get to the pasty white red-haired Jesus up there. In a few weeks, it's going to be awesome. Uh, actually, I'm very excited to begin this series. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Um, and to begin, in 1976, there was an American pastor, his name was S.M. Lockridge, and he gave a message in Detroit, Michigan, uh, that has become a famous message known as That's My King. And thankfully, they recorded the audio, and we have it today that we can hear it. And a lot of you have heard it before, or uh, you've heard snippets of it, and and. Uh, Today we're going to show a video that has part of that audio to it, and I showed this video about four years ago, but I was trying to think about how to begin this series on Jesus, and I, couldn't, and I just kept thinking of this video again, and just thinking this really uh, sets up um, who Jesus is and gets us going in a really, really good way. So, let's watch this. says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-trained of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never 
powerful uh, spirit-led use of our language to describe our indescribable Savior, right? Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, as we try and talk about you, what a What a, what a privilege, but also what, what a responsibility and what a, what a challenging yet fulfilling uh, task that is to not only do today, but for each of us to do throughout our lives, to describe your unlimited, unmatched power and love that so many don't understand. So many still need to receive. Today, I pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to us. That, Lord, you would, you would use words that have been prepared, but, Lord, they're, they're not my words. That these, this is from your word. And, and, Lord, that you would help us all together as a church body start to identify with how powerful a king you are. And how much you change everything about everything. And so, God, we, uh, we invite your spirit today to do your work in and among us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, one, of the, one of the themes that you see uh, very early on in the scriptures is that Jesus is a king. And you see this idea of kingdom really all throughout it. And to begin a series on Jesus, it was really kind of an interesting thought, you know, a church talking about Jesus is not rocket science. It is what we talk about yet to say, oh, we're going to really talk about Jesus. It's like, where do you begin? And so I began, if you will, where Jesus did and what he said at the very beginning. In Mark 1, 15, he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So when he says the kingdom of God is near, he's saying essentially the kingdom is at hand. And he is, if the kingdom's going to show up, then there's got to be a king, right? And he is saying, I am that king. I am the king. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. So now that we have this understanding that we're about to talk about a kingdom, I was thinking about just the, 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 the thought of kingdoms. We live in a world in which kingdoms are sort of a thing of the past. They're a thing of history. They're a thing that, if anything, they're a thing of fairy tales, right? And they're Disney's magic kingdom, they're whatever. Like kingdoms are not necessarily something that we see in the present sense of the world, yet we are fascinated by them, aren't we? We're fascinated by kingdoms, case in point. What happened yesterday, right? We've got a picture here. We saw royalty, right? And, and the world watched. Over 20 million Americans got up in the middle of the night, or early this morning, or yesterday morning, whatever it was, and watched this um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle get married. Why do we care about this? I mean, why do we care about that? I mean, he's eighth in line or something on the throne. Every time yeah. William and Kate have a baby, he's like, dang it. <laughs> Most monarchies aren't even true kingdoms, are they? The truth is today, though, we have modified kingdoms. We still have nations that serve as sovereign entities that, rubber, or that govern and rule with authority, but the practices are just updated, and essentially they serve the same functions that kingdoms have always served. And here's the thing about kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world have always been at odds with the kingdom of God for like ever. That's sort of the reality about the kingdom. And here's Jesus showing up, announcing a new kingdom, announcing that he's the king. And this is actually big news. So for me to even start to reconcile this idea 
of that there is a kingdom of God and there are kingdoms of this world, I had to figure out, again, where to begin, and I want to take us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have a Bible, feel free to open to 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse number 4. It says this, So all the elders, and we are, there we are, you stop, all of them, not just some of them, every one of them, not just the ones who think they're in charge, but even the ones who aren't in charge, if you know what I'm talking about. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old. That's not very nice. You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now this is a big moment. Prior to this moment, the people of God have recognized God as king. They had never had a king. They had had somebody like a prophet or a judge that had sort of presided over matters. If you read much of the Old Testament, you know this. And this moment marks something very significant. And they knew what they were asking for. They were asking for a king because they wanted to be like everyone else. And who is everyone else? The world. And the world all had what? Kingdoms. They wanted a kingdom of this world. Verse six, but then they said, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, This displeased Samuel, and he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So the people reject God as their king, right? We need to take note of this moment. This story also marks the beginning, if you will, of the age of the kings for the people of God. Right here, you have Saul's the first one, then you get David, Solomon. It goes all the way down. If you get to the New Testament, there's another king. You remember the king? Herod. Herod was the king of the Jews. He was just the watered-down version of the king. And the importance of this is because in the Old Testament, there's also these stories that begin to come up and prophecies that begin to come up about a new king, a king that would be the king of all kings. Now, you got to think about this. These are, the, these are the same people who just had a king of all kings and they rejected the king of all kings, yet they are praying and prophesying and hoping for a king of all kings. How does that make any sense? The thing that set them apart as the very special, unique people of God, which was God as their king, the creator God that they recognized as king, yet here's this moment in which they say, you know what? We don't want you as king anymore, yet we're going to start prophesying about a coming king that's going to be the king of all kings. And so they start doing this. Imagine being a, uh, being a part of an Israelite clan, maybe a tribe, maybe, a, maybe you have a large family. And you are growing up in this, and there's campfire stories every night, right? Your whole family gets around the campfire, and maybe you're gathering around eating some quail or unleavened bread or lentil stew. I don't know. And your family is gathered around, and your grandfather, who is the patriarch of the family, he would sit down and he would tell stories about your family. And he would talk about the greats. If you go all the way back, generations like Abraham and Moses and Joshua. And then he would get to this point where he said, and, and kids, I want, you to, I want you to hear this family. I want you to hear this. There's a king that's coming. And he's going to be the king of all kings. He's going to be the king that will make everything right. He's going to get rid of the Roman government. He's going, to, he's going to set Israel up as the nation they ought to be. He's going to put us on the map. We are going to be the greatest nation in the world. He is going to overthrow all of our enemies, and he's going to establish us because he will be the most powerful king that has ever existed. And everybody, all your brothers and sisters, all your cousins, everybody would be like, I, I can't wait for that king because that king's gonna change everything about everything. 
And that's what people would talk about, and they would continue to talk about it. And the Messiah would be the greatest king that the world had ever known. He would bring world peace, gather people back to Jerusalem. He'd bring what they called shalom. And he would establish Israel as the greatest and most powerful kingdom on earth. This was the story they told around the campfire. What they were waiting on, what prophecies had talked about. So imagine the chaos and the level of emotion running around Jesus when he shows up and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. He announces this. And can you imagine the intensity around that? They had been talking about this for generations. And he is saying, in your presence, this is fulfilled. I am the Messiah. I am the King. People were shocked. It was hard for many to believe. You, you are the king? You're who we've been waiting on? The Jewish leadership becomes increasingly angry about this. Why? They've been waiting for this king. But see, Jesus, as we know, we know how the story goes, is not the king they expected. He wasn't at all what they had expected. They had always imagined a king coming in power that would establish Israel as the elite nation of the world the superior people on this planet, by the way, not a good thing to ever want to be the superior people on a planet or the elite nation of the world. But nonetheless, as Jesus came and as a humble servant, and he becomes such a humble servant that he couldn't, the people couldn't quite swallow the fact that he was a king no matter how many miracles he performed, no matter how much power he exercised, the fact that he was a humble servant threw them off and they rejected him. The people wanted a king that established earthly power, and they were looking for a king that would drop, that would, they were looking for a king that was different than Jesus. And here's Jesus calling them to drop everything and serve others. And they were thinking, what kind of kingdom is that? No other kingdom in the world is like that. And that's exactly the point. Jesus was calling him to a kingdom that was not of this world. And this is ultimately what leads, right, to the religious leaders plotting his murder arresting and putting him to death. And in John 18, there's a story playing out between Jesus and a guy named Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler who oversees the trial of Jesus, which we all probably are familiar with, or at least most of us. The interaction between Pilate and Jesus is actually some of the most telling scriptures we have about the kingship of Jesus. And this is what it says, starting in John 18. If you want to turn there, you can. John 18, verse 33 on the screen, though. It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed me over or handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place." So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right, right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. That's huge. And for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That is a powerful sentence. 
If you skip down in John 19, this conversation continues, starting in verse 9. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as Stove Stone Pavement, which has always felt redundant to me. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over, handed over to them to be crucified. So this is a bold statement by the chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. They reject, right, what they've been waiting on, which sounds a lot like 1 Samuel 8, doesn't it? Where they reject the very thing that set them apart as different and special, yet they wanted to be like everyone else. They reject Jesus as king and vow allegiance to a man known as Caesar. Have I mentioned yet that the kingdoms of this world are at odds with the kingdom of God? Jesus wasn't the kind of king they wanted. They wanted one who would come in power, probably imagining someone who would wipe out men like Pilate and Caesar. So we get into this thought, though, that Jesus claims that his kingdom is not of this world. What does that even mean? Well, I want to I do something today. I want to do a little drawing for you, all right? So we're going to allow me to do that on screen here. Always good to dust off my Pablo Picasso skills. <clears throat> all right. So we have this idea of kingdoms, don't we, that we're talking about here. Some people are just laughing, and I haven't even done anything. <laughs> now, anytime you get into a discussion about kingdoms, there's some natural questions that come up, such as, who do I trust? Because in any kingdom, shouldn't you trust those that are leading you? Shouldn't you put your trust in them in the sense that if they're my king, I'm going to trust that they have my best interest in mind? Also, in a kingdom, you're going to have this key question of, who rules me? Who's in control of me? Who at the end of the day do I submit to? And then the last question, who do I worship? You know, in the sense of, scripturally speaking, a kingdom, and even historically speaking, 
so many of the kingdoms, the king was seen as a, as, as a deity, wasn't he? There was, a, there was an act of worship that you would have for Caesar, that you would have for whatever king was in front of you, that you would worship them. And so if we just took this from a very simple kind of view, and we said there are kingdoms of this world, and there, are, there is a kingdom of God, and we, that doesn't look good. I'm going to give God more respect than that. That's not much more, but a little. <laughs> it's not the easiest to draw with the old uh, apple pen. All right. <clears throat> so inside each of these structures, there's something that's critical that we must understand. The kingdom of this world is rooted in power. And guess what? The kingdom of God is rooted in power, isn't it? The kingdom of God has always been about the power of God to rule and to reign, to, to, to sovereignly do whatever he wants to do. But in the kingdom of this world, often what's, how this power is established, by the means of violence, they achieve their power. When Jesus came, he did something completely different. He didn't act or use means of violence, although everyone in his people wished that he would have. They thought he was coming to overthrow the government, right? But what did Jesus do? He came to establish a kingdom through the acts of love. And if we keep going down, what does the kingdom of this world look to establish? They look to establish some sort of form of government in order to give structure and sustain their kingdom. And what did Jesus do? He did not put his seat in the power, or he didn't put his power in the seats of government. Instead, he wanted to create, and he has created, a movement in which people would be called to the kingdom in such a way that it would transform who they are and how they see the world. And in the kingdoms of this world, there's a, once a government is formed, there's this process that we'll just call fair exchange, in which they say, hey, we will take care of you. You pay your taxes. We're going to create military to protect you. We're going to have people that mow the medians in the, in, the, in the interstates when you pay your taxes. Fair exchange, right? We'll take care of all those details. You give us half of your money, basically, right? But under the kingdom of God, there's this rootedness and a gift. And it's a gift of salvation. It's a gift of eternal salvation, right? That he says, I will give you life eternal. And it's a gift. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can give me to get it back or get this. I'm just going to give it to you. And inside the kingdoms of this world, there's this strange preoccupation with self-preservation. While in the kingdom of God, it's not about preserving self, but Jesus comes, and it's about sacrifice. And so you have these tension points, right? And so if we are standing in the middle of these kingdoms, which we are, in this present tense, we're standing in the tension between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And we're standing here, how do we deal with the tension? Because here's the thing, the idea that we have over here of the kingdom of this world, it's real, it's in front of us, and we actually are, we are citizens of nations, we are citizens of the United States, we have a government that we sit underneath. It doesn't mean that we completely can, can, can remove ourselves from the kingdoms of this world, yet God is calling us 
And Jesus has called us to a new kind of kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. And what I find is that humanity has oddly had this story of not just living in the, not living in the tension too well, and instead we've seen it even in scriptures where they reject the kingdom of God, don't they? Give us a king like the other nations. We have another king but Caesar. Sometimes there's obvious big ways like that, but there's a lot of subtle ways in which we reject the kingdom of God. Take some other scriptural examples. Take the example of Peter. Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he reverts to an act of violence by cutting a guy's ear off. All in the midst while Jesus is saying, put your sword away and healing the man in an act of love. Maybe that one's not so subtle. None of us have, are going to pull out swords, right? Maybe. Okay, what about James and John? They're having a conversation with Jesus, and they come up to him, and they say, hey, Jesus, we want to make sure that when we get into heaven, we have a seat on your right and your left. What does that sound like? We really are really hoping to be in a good seat. They are, they are running after self-preservation all in the very moment where Jesus is giving his life for them. Do you understand, like, this is the kingdom at tension and at odds with each other every moment of our lives in which we have the choice to say, who is my king? Who is my king? Am I going to submit to the kingdoms of this world which have nothing to do, they have, there's a practical sense of the kingdoms that we live in, but then there is the kingdom of the worlds that operate under a different understanding of what is good and right and the way to live. The story of Jesus has come to establish a better kingdom, a kingdom that has always intended, has always been intended for his people. So this series about Jesus, it comes from a place of knowing that he's changed everything. And if, if you know Jesus, if he is your savior, he's already changed you. But I would say he's not done changing you. He has more in you, for you, with you. And Jesus' love for you and for me I mean, it really is out of control, and like we sing, it's reckless, it's unhinged. And he knows the ways of his kingdom are better than the ways of the kingdom of this world. So let me ask you a question. So how do we live in the tension, this point right here, how do we live in the tension of being in between these kingdoms? Well, what if, what if we just started with this? How did Jesus live in the tension? What did he do? Well, he began by living with a purpose to bring something better into the world, to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. I want to I read you another scripture. It's in John 17. In John 17, we find something really, really insightful about how to live in this world that is at odds with the kingdom of God. John 17, verse 13, Jesus is praying. And he says this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. So he's praying to the Lord. He says, I'm saying these things to you while I'm still in the world so that they, meaning the believers, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, right? And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Are you confused yet? Did you follow that? So many massive things said in these few verses. Have you guys ever heard the statement, in the world, not of it? How many of you have heard that statement, nod your head if you've heard that statement, I'm in the world, not of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Often we've said that in a way that not being of the world is, is the action. You know what I mean? Like, that's the goal. Like, we say, in the world, not of it, meaning we are, we are trying to order our life in a way in which all the action is about not being of the world, which for us has, depending on who you are and how you think, means, oh, I got to separate myself from the world. The way Jesus said it is, not being of the world is a stated fact. Just like he is not of the world. When you are with Jesus, you're not of this world. And that's actually not the des- necessarily the goal, what he's saying. He's actually just saying who you are. But what does he say is more about the action? Verse 18, if you're still up there, right? It says this, as you sent me into the world. This is the very last verse there. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And let's not forget verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, actually, we're getting close to finished here because this is about to come together, hopefully, really clearly for us. So he, first of all, prays for protection in our world. So maybe instead of saying, in the world and not of it, we ought to say, not of the world, but sent into it. Make sure... I'm not confusing because there's a lot of different world statements here. (laughs) You are not of this world, but you are sent into it. And saying that this way emphasizes something different, doesn't it? It emphasizes what we're actually supposed to do. It rightly places what Jesus is saying to us and who he's calling us to become. And living the gospel is learning what it means to bring the kingdom to earth, the kingdom that Jesus spoke about. He spoke about was exactly <clears throat> what he's calling us to. And the kingdom he spoke of was not of this world, right? And not of this world mean his kingdom is about love, it's not about violence. His kingdom is about his kingdom is about a gift, not fair exchange. His kingdom is about a movement, not a government. It's about sacrifice and not self-preservation. The kingdom that Jesus brought didn't bring separation into the world but Jesus actually went straight into the heart of the world. Jesus came to a world with a purpose to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, repent and believe the good news. And this is good news. He really did change everything about everything. But remember those questions that I wrote on the screen. Who do I trust? Who rules my life? Who do I worship? Now, I'm guessing that there's someone in here, some, several of us in here, and I'm hopeful there are there's several of us in here. If you're a person that says, I absolutely trust Jesus. At the end of the day, when everything boils down, like I have these moments where sure, I put my trust in other things, but ultimately my trust is rooted in Jesus. If you're someone that says that, and if you're someone that says, ultimately it's God and his word and what Jesus says that rules my life. That's what rules me. 
Like, if you're someone that says that, and if you're someone that says, you know what, I do my best to not worship the things of this world, but to, to have a true, authentic expression of worship of my Creator, God. If you're someone that says that, and I'm hopeful a lot of us do, what you're saying is Jesus is my King. Jesus is my King. I trust Him. He rules me and I worship him. He's, he's my king. And we can't just say that, can we? We can't just say that and hope that that to be true. We have to be able to say, there's stories that back this up. There's proof and evidence in my life. There's fruit in my life that actually says that I trust him, that he rules my life, and that I worship him. And if that's you, what I'm telling you and what Jesus is saying is what it means then to say Jesus is your king is it says, you are saying then to the world that I am not of this world, but I'm sent into it. That I, I'm gonna go and announce the kingdom. And, and, and what did I say, what did Jesus do? How do we live in the tension of this? We actually, we actually do what Jesus did, which was he went and he announced and proclaimed and embodied and lived a better version of what a kingdom looks like. One that wasn't about what the kingdoms of this world make it about, right? And he kept pressing into this. And that's what he's calling us to. Would you go live a sent life? If today, though, you would say, Jesus has not been who I've trusted more than anything. Jesus has not been who's ruled my life. Jesus has not been the center of my worship. If you, if you would say that today, listen, that's okay. It's okay in this sense that what's okay about it is that Jesus is here right now. The Holy Spirit is here right now. And he's saying, I, I'm offering everything I've offered to people for all time to you too. I love you that much that if you'll let me be the king of your life. Because here's the competing kings, by the way. The competing kings are often are often there's people around us in our life and sometimes they're really good people. And so the competing things are usually good things, by the way. They're good things like, I trust my family, I put my whole life around my family, I, and they are the focus of my heart, they rule everything about me. Nothing wrong with family. Family is part of God's design, but it cannot be king. The other things that happen is not, maybe it's not, it's other good things, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's the desire to, to succeed, and success is not a bad thing but all the endeavors are put into that. And so if I said, what do you trust? And if you say, well, it's really like a plan and it's money and it's security. And that's what I've put my trust in. And all of my efforts have been put into that basket in which I'm gonna make sure my life does not end up back in that place that it was because it was a bad place. And so I've instead endeavored to get everything together. And so, and so there's like this drive in you in which all of your trust and what rules you is about something other than the kingdom of God. And, and, and perhaps, maybe, maybe that's not it. Maybe it's, maybe it's for you, it's, say, well, it's not success, it's not, my, it's not my family, but maybe it's just you. Maybe you're the person that's like, I don't ever give up control. I, I hold on to it, like it's, it's mine. And here's the thing, I, I believe that God exists, but I don't believe that God orders all of my, I mean, whatever, whatever logic train you've went to, to not allow God to be king of your life so that you can still be in control, Guess what? So many people went down that same, that same, those same tracks before. And what they found at the end, what they found at the end is a life that is lacking, lacking 
all the things that you needed to really live life and you find emptiness at the end of it because at the end of yourself without Jesus is nothing. Jesus is everything. He changes everything about everything. And so if you're sitting here today and you're sitting here thinking, hey, I, I love Jesus. I thought I loved Jesus. But if I'm asking you some really key questions here about who is the Lord and the King of your life, do you put your trust in him? Does he rule you? And do, is he the center of your worship? And so many people have went to church for years and have never made Jesus king. And I'm just saying to you, like, as a, as a person that just says, okay, Lord, I just want to be your servant. I'm not saying this for any other reason than for you in your own heart to say, I'm not going to reject him again. The story of God's people, God's people has been one of rejection. They've rejected God over and over again. The very thing they've been waiting on and the very thing they thought they had, they've rejected it for their own purpose and their own gain to establish a better kingdom of this world. So when Jesus comes and he announces a kingdom, he actually goes on, and we'll talk about this later, and talks about how big of a call this is and how, how much he's calling us to. And it's all good things. Who do I trust? Who rules me? And who do I worship? So maybe you're done in trusting other things and letting go, and you would say, today I'm ready to make him king of my life you bow your heads with me. If today you want to make Jesus the king of your life, I just want to say this. What that means is you're saying, God, you're going to be the center of my life. You're going to be what I trust. You're going to be what rules me. You're going to be who I worship. It's not going to be me anymore. It's not going to be them. It's not going to be that. If you're ready to do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say um, today it's simple as you acknowledging that in your heart and saying, Lord, I want to surrender to you and give you my life. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer if you're ready to do that. And so if you're feeling in your heart right now, I, I need to do this. I need to make Jesus my king. I want to lead you in a prayer. Just repeat this prayer. It's not a magical prayer. It's not a prayer that's from scripture. It's just a prayer that so many people have said over the years something like this prayer to just confess that Jesus is Jesus is Lord and that we need him and so if you want to make Jesus Lord of your life king of your life today just say this prayer repeat what I say say this say Lord I want to give you my life today go ahead and say that Lord I want to give you my life today I confess I'm a sinner and I ask for forgiveness place my faith in you as Lord of all. Thank you for your gift of salvation. From this day forward, I am yours, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, with your heads bowed, just one more thing. Today, as we sing, I want to encourage anyone in the room to come and pray. And I want us to pray at the altar like this. If You can pray however you want. Maybe the Lord's stirring you in a certain way. But um, perhaps for us, 
that even would say Jesus is my king. Maybe you want to come today and you want to pray at the altar and say, but Lord, I, I really do need to trust you right now. I really need you to, I want to give you control because I've been in the tension and I'm being pulled back and forth and I just want, I just want to trust you. I want to make you the ruler of my life. I want to return to the thing that I know, but Lord, I've struggled with. And Lord, I want you to be the center of my worship. Maybe you're sitting here today going, I haven't, I don't even worshiped him in so long, and I want to. And so maybe today we come to the altar and we just say those things to Jesus and say, I want to trust you. I want you to rule my life. I want you to be the center of my worship. I want you to be my king. So Father, I pray for any of us in this room that, that need that to be a prayer today, and that we need to act and we need to come, we need to kneel before you and say that, Lord, as an act of obedience. Would we, would we be a church that always trusts you, that always lets you rule us, and that you would be the center of our worship? May we go and be a sent people, living with purpose, proclaiming and announcing the kingdom of God, living and embodying it in such a way that people would see how much better it is to be in life with you than anyone else. I pray that over this church and over each person in this room. We love you, Jesus. Amen.